Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear God's word to us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm not actually preaching that text. I just wanted to see if she could do it. And uh, well done, Sarah. That was incredible. Let's give her a round of applause, seriously. Uh, I am preaching that text, by the way. That was just a joke. Hey, how many of you in here are done with your Christmas shopping? There are, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. There are actually people in here. Last service, there were none. Okay, so now I have something I got to rise up to. I got to get my Christmas shopping done. I don't know about you, but this time of year, I'm actually one of those people who really, really, really loves this time of year. Like all of it, like the movies, the music, the decorations, the food, the excitement, all that stuff. Uh, did this time, this Christmas time of year, I just love, I just love it. I really do. Because there's one part of this year, it's true for me and it's true for all of us here, that is kind of a mixed bag for us. In this bag, there's a lot of really good things. There's a lot of things we can be excited about and look forward to. There's also some hard things, some painful things, some annoying things, some frustrating things. And we all, we all experience this. Now, I'm not talking about all the weight we're going to gain because of the food we're going to eat. I'm not talking about driving through who knows what kind of weather to get home for Christmas. What I am talking about is family. It's family. I don't know about you, but getting all my family into one room is a mixed bag. There's a lot of really good stuff about it. 
I love being with my family, but there are some hard things, and there's those annoying little quirks that they all do. And I would say something to them if it weren't for the fact that I do it too. You know what I'm talking about? And then there's that crazy uncle or aunt or cousin that you don't really know what to do with, but it's like, it's Christmas, you got to invite them. Just as an aside, if you don't know who that is in your family, it's probably you. <laughs> now, we can say all those things, and we can joke about all these things, but the reality is that it's a part of that mixed bag is some real pain and some real brokenness in the history of our family. Some of you may have things like divorce, substance abuse, wayward children in your family. And getting together for Christmas is a time when all that stuff comes right up to the surface. Put it one way, we all have a lot of skeletons in our family's closet. And so what do we do? When Christmas rolls around, we, we hold everything, all the skeletons in, and, and close the doors around it and lock them and just board it up and pretend like that closet doesn't even exist, right? I don't know if you're anything like me. Courtney and I go through a routine every single time we have people over to our loft. And now I'm letting the cat out of the bag, so whatever. But for an hour leading up to every time we have people over to our lofts, we are doing this routine where we take everything that's dirty or not folded or out of place and we just throw it in our bedroom and close the door and lock it. Those laughs are because you do it too. We all do this, right? It's like the one area of our house, and we all have this in our lives and in our family's past. It's the one area where it's kind of like, come on in, look at our life is together and so well decorated. Don't go in that room, don't go in that room. And that is how we engage our families at Christmas. Or maybe it's just me. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Even though I know that this is the story for all of our families, no matter how bad your family is, and I'm sure it's bad, your family is not the worst. Your family is not the worst. There is a family in history that absolutely takes the cake when it comes to skeletons in the closet. No matter how bad your family might be, annoying or painful or whatever, your family does not hold an Advent candle, the family of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're continuing in a series today we started two weeks ago called For All People. And in this series, what we've been seeing is that God's response to our sin has had this distinctly global focus to it. We saw way back in Genesis 12 that God made this promise to this man, Abraham, saying that through your offspring, Abraham, I am going to do my work of saving a world who is broken by sin. I'm going to draw for myself a family that is from and for all people. And last week, we cheated and fast forward all the way to the end of the story, and we saw that in the end, God does actually get his family. That in the end, there is a family from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and tongues who are worshiping God together in the end, in his throne room for eternity. God gets his family. Well, today we're turning to the middle. We're going to go to the middle of the story, and we're going to begin meeting a guy who we're going to continue to get to know for some weeks now, uh, who is at the center of this story the hinge on whom, this, on whom this whole promise turns. We're going to meet today a king who is for all people. A king who is for all people. Now, you might expect, given the fact that this guy is going to be king, not just over his people, but over all people, every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people from all time, we might expect when we go to his royal line, when we see his predecessors, that we are going to see just the who's who of history, like the best people, right? The best kings, the most wise people, the most caring, compassionate, everything Jesus was, but Jesus is just a little bit better. But what we find when we turn to this genealogy and when we actually walk through it this morning 
is the exact opposite. Jesus' family is the most messed up, jacked up, sinned up family that ever existed. And I want to show you this morning why that's the best news we could ever hear. So if you have a Bible or an app on your smart device, you can turn over or toggle over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, which is where we will be today. If you have a community Bible or using one of our community Bibles, you'll find it on page 807 just to give you a head start. And we're going to walk together today through the genealogy. I don't know about you, but every time this passage comes up in my like reading plan, it's just skip over that. Can't even pronounce any of these names anyways. It takes Sarah to come over and read it for me, for me to understand how these are pronounced, right? But what we're going to find when we walk through it today is that th these, this is actually an incredibly rich history of who Jesus is and it has a lot to teach us. So we're going to walk through it today and we're going to see all of the skeletons in Jesus' closet, in the closet of his family. Um, but a word before we jump in. This list is not meant to be exhaustive. If you compare it to the Old Testament, you will find that there are some generations that are left off because Matthew's goal is not simply to give us just historical data. Okay? Now, these people are all historical people who really lived in history and time and space and who are really related to Jesus. But what we see in this list is actually a curated, kind of a selected group of Jesus' um, predecessors, of those from whom he descended. And Matthew does this. He selects this list to make a point, a really, really important point, a point that is going to help us understand the entirety of the rest of his gospel. And so we're going to walk through the genealogy together, and then when we're finished, we'll come back and we'll see what that point is that's going to help us understand Matthew's message, okay? All right, let's dive in to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off the bat, Matthew is laying down his cards, okay? There are two people that you need to know Jesus is related to. David and Abraham. If you don't take anything else away from this genealogy, you've got to know that he is related to David and Abraham. This verse is kind of like the cliff notes. You know what the cliff notes are? Anybody use cliff notes in here? Uh, I didn't know about cliff notes until this week. I just heard about them. I didn't use them for every single book in high school. Um, but cliff notes is like the summary, right? You've got this really big, thick book or maybe big genealogy, and you want to be able to engage it, but you don't want to read the whole book because it takes a lot of time. So you get this really little kind of summary that hits the high-level themes. Okay, so that's what this verse is. You've got to know, if you take anything else away, that Jesus is related to David and Abraham. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are often referred to as the forefathers of the Israelite nation. Now, we talk about the forefathers of the United States when we talk about people like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. The difference is, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually the fathers of the Israelite nation. Everybody who could trace, it were ethnically Jewish, could trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and the descendants of his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah is one of those tribes, and that is the tribe that Jesus is born into. Let's jump back in, because it's about to get all kinds of messed up. Verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. Now, Tamar is the first of five women, including Mary, who show up in this genealogy. 
And her mark uh, is a really important point for us to step aside and consider what's going on in Jesus' family. Genesis 38 is where you can find the story of Judah and Tamar. If you've never read that, I encourage you to go home and read it because you will be shocked it's in the Bible, I promise you, let alone in Jesus' line. So here's kind of the, well, low points of the story. Judah has two sons, Ur and Onan, his two legitimate sons. Notice that neither of them are in this genealogy. Okay, Judah's son Ur marries a woman named Tamar. Ur and Onan both pass away, and Tamar has no children. So she decides to take matters into her own hands, and she disguises herself as a prostitute, which involves covering up her face so that her identity would not be known. And in so doing, she seduces Judah, and she gets pregnant. Now, in the course of this transaction, she takes some of Judah's personal effects to kind of guarantee payment. He says he'll come back later with payment, and he leaves kind of, uh, it's like when you borrow a pen from your teacher and you have to leave a shoe. So he leaves his personal effects with Tamar. And then he finds out, Judah finds out that his dead son's wife is pregnant. And she's a part of his household. She's under his uh, kind of purview. He's responsible for her. How could this possibly happen? Who got her pregnant? So he gets, he just in, in a furious rage, calls her in and says, who did this to you? And she shows him his own personal effects. What Judah finds out is that he is the one who got his dead son's wife pregnant. And the son from that relationship is Perez, who is in the line of Jesus. Okay, this is the kind of stuff from like daytime soap opera. This is nonsense, but this is in the history. This is in the genealogy of Jesus. This is who Jesus comes from. Let's move on. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab. Just for a little historical reference, we think Aminadab was a part of the generation that was saved out of Egypt and went into the desert to Mount Sinai and all that. So that's kind of where we are with the history of this. Aminadab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. By Rahab. This is the next spot where we'll jump out of the genealogy and talk for a little bit. A lot of you know who Rahab is. She's the second woman to be mentioned here. Rahab is a Canaanite woman, so she's not Jewish, and she is a prostitute. Noticing a theme? So Rahab, one day, catches wind that there have been these two Israelite spies in the city of Jericho, where she lives, wandering around. She finds them, brings them into her house, and then smuggles them out of the city to safety. So that when Israel comes back and defeats Jericho, Rahab and her family are spared because she's on the side of God's people. Now let's think about this for a second. Rahab is a foreign woman who is displaced from her people by the violence of war. To put it in today's terms, she's a refugee. And to bring her into God's people is a big risk because God's people are bound by this law that God gave to Moses, which includes thou shalt not commit adultery, and she is a prostitute. So this text the fact that she is listed in the, gene the, the selected genealogy of Jesus ought to tell us something about God's heart for the refugee. But at the risk of preaching a different sermon, let's dive back into the text. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth is a, an extremely important character in this story. She has a whole book named after her. You can go Read that on your spare time. It's an interesting story. But the most important thing for our purposes about Ruth is the fact that she is a Moabite. 
So she also is not Jewish. She's a Moabite woman. And to be of the Moabite people is perhaps the worst designation possible if you wanted to be good with the Israelites. And here's why. Way back in Genesis 19, we read a story about a guy named Lot. You guys remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? Not a good dude. Okay, so Lot has two daughters. And one day, the two daughters come together and decide, you know what, we're single. We don't have any kids. We got to take matters into our own hands. So they hatch this plan to get their father drunk and impregnate themselves by him. Genesis 19, I'm not lying. And so they carry out this plan and it works. And the oldest daughter gets pregnant and she has a son and his name is Moab. And all of the descendants from Moab, called the Moabites, are people who have come from an incestuous relationship between a father and his daughter. So you can understand why this whole people group is a terrible, terrible mark on the history of Israel. And yet, here's Ruth the Moabite in the selected genealogy of Jesus. And look who her great-grandson is. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David the king. Ruth, whose mother-in-law is a Canaanite prostitute, and who herself is a Moabite, is the great-grandmother of the most famous king in the history of Israel. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon. Listen to the wording of this. By the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah. Doesn't, Matthew doesn't even bother to name her. It's Bathsheba, by the way, Matthew. But he wants to point out that this is not David's wife. David has a whole host of legitimate children. But instead, the one who is in the genealogy is Solomon, the daughter of Uriah's wife. A lot of you know this story, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is a famous one. David is supposed to be away at war because his army is away at war, but he decides not to go. His army, all these soldiers are out there putting their life on the line on behalf of the king who's not even there. And one of those soldiers is Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And while the army is gone, but David is not, he sees while he's up walking on the roof this woman who is bathing on her roof. Now, you might think, well, what is she doing bathing on her roof? There's probably only one place in the entire city that she could be seen while she's on her roof, which is the roof of the palace, where David is instead of at war. So he calls and has her brought to him. She gets pregnant, and David freaks out. His plan, in a nutshell, is to have the commanders of his army orchestrate the next battle so that Uriah will certainly be killed, and thus at least publicly keeping David's name clean. And his plan works. And Bathsheba becomes his wife, and the second son they have together is Solomon. Okay? You guys thought genealogies were boring. Solomon is another one of the illegitimate children that we find in Jesus' line. Look, what do you notice about the four women we've encountered so far? They have a lot in common. It's not totally unheard of to find women in ancient Near East genealogies at all. But when you do find them, you would expect them to be like superhero status. Because when you find a woman in a genealogy, that's like a highlighter. It's like that you need to pay attention to this. This is important. So for instance, Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she shows up later, you'd expect her to show up in this genealogy. Maybe Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who's the mother of all these people. You might expect her in there too, but not these four women. None of whom are even Jewish. 
all of whom have the stain of very intense sexual sin in their past. Which, at least for women, unfortunately, is probably the worst kind at this time. And we have to ask ourselves, in this selected list of Jesus' predecessors, what is Matthew doing, including these four? Let's put it this way. We're in the middle of an election season right now that has another year left to go. Um, just like when I said it first service, that just ruined my morning. But we'll get through it together, I guess. And what's happening in, in the course of all of these presidential debates and in the course of all of these uh, times that these people are on the news these candidates are spending time and money, probably hiring people, to go out and find all the dirt on the other candidates they possibly can to show that their past is not squeaky clean, therefore they're not fit enough to be president, while they're spending all their time hiding all of their own skeletons as far back from view as is absolutely possible. Because if you're going to be the president of this country, you've got to be perfect. So what in the world is Matthew doing laying out all of the dirty laundry in Jesus' family for the entire world to, like, publishing it. What is he doing? Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment. But until then, let's hasten on. The next verses tell us all about the kings that descend from David. And we're going to continue to see that Jesus' family is quite the mixed bag. Verse 7, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, both bad, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, both good. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, bad. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, both kind of meh. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, bad. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, good. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, the worst dude to ever live. He's terrible. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, bad. Amos, the father of Josiah, good. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, bad. And his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Now, if you go back through the Old Testament, you'll see that there are some kings that are left out of this list. But the point is for us to see that the kingly predecessors of Jesus are a very, very mixed bag. There are some good kings, some mediocre kings, and some really, really bad kings. This is what is in, is in Jesus' past. And once they go away into exile, at the end of the passage we just read, for 600 years, the throne of David is vacant. That's also going to be significant. We're going to come back to it in a minute. For the 600 years that the throne is vacant, David's family, though not on the throne, lives on through a bunch of guys' names in verses 12 through 15 that I'm not going to read because they're the most difficult to pronounce in the whole passage. <laughs> and it also illustrates the fact that we know almost nothing about these guys. This whole list, all the way through to Jesus being born, we know almost nothing about these people who are in his line, historically. They weren't particularly good. They weren't particularly bad. They just weren't of note. They just were. The one guy we do know anything about at the end of verse 12 is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a part of the first wave of people who were exiled who came back into Jerusalem, and he helped rebuild the temple. Maybe this is where carpentry becomes the family business. I don't know. But this is all we got. We don't know anything about any of these people. Historically, they're kind of a bunch of nobodies until we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
Now, something about this last verse. This is probably one of the most difficult verses in this whole book to understand. And here's why. Why 14? Why did Matthew leave out some and choose other so that he could get his list to three sets of 14? And why does he label them 14 when the third set actually has 13? You go through and count it later. What's he doing here? Well, some people think, some people think that he was doing this to help with memorization, which I know is a load off of your shoulders because you were wondering, how am I ever going to memorize this list? Now you know, three sets of 14, you got it. Now that's potentially a pretty good reason. I mean, at the time that this was written, the literacy rate among the people who are going to hear this is pretty low. So they're not going to be able to go back and grab it off the shelf and read it. So they, if they're going to know it, they've got to memorize it. So maybe. The truth of the matter is we just don't know. Just don't know. Scholars have offered varying ideas. Some of them are compelling, some of them aren't. But the reality is we just we don't know why Matthew forced this list into three sets of 14. But what we do know is that Matthew is using this list to make a point. He's using this list to introduce us to the main character of his gospel and to help us understand something so fundamental about him that if we miss it, we will misunderstand everything else we read. So we're going to be in this gospel for a long time now. We're starting Matthew. We're going to go right through to the end. And if we are going to understand what is to come in Matthew, we have got to understand what Matthew needs us to hear through this genealogy, and it is this. Jesus is the promised king for all people. Jesus is the promised king for all people. And this point is so important for us to understand. I'm going to take a minute just to dissect this sentence, and then I'll wrap it up. Okay, first, Jesus is promised. Jesus is promised. If you missed the first couple weeks of our series, I'd encourage you to check out our fancy new website and listen to the last two sermons. They're really important background information for uh, who Jesus is and what he's doing in Matthew. Um, but the short story is that way back in Genesis 12, like we said, God promised Abraham that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be the one through whom God did his saving work in the world. And what Matthew is trying to show us here, the reason he starts with Abraham, instead of going all the way back to the beginning like he could, like another gospel writer does, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He starts with Abraham. He puts Abraham in the Cliff Notes version because he needs us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that Abraham's offspring would bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is the one through whom God is going to do his saving work. Now you might say, well, that's kind of a big jump just because the guy's name is listed in the genealogy. Well, that's true. But the Apostle Paul actually speaks directly to this. And he does some work to make abundantly and explicitly clear this connection between the two. Now, we talked about this, but Paul is an expert in the Hebrew scriptures. He probably had most, if not all, of it memorized in Hebrew. Okay, he knows his stuff. And this is what he has to say. This is in Galatians 3, verse 16. This is what he has to say about the fact that Jesus descends from Abraham. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It, in other words, the scriptures, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ? Who is Christ? What Matthew is trying to get us to see and what Paul is making explicitly clear is that Jesus is the offspring, singular, promised to Abraham. 
the one through whom God would make for himself a family from all people and for all people. So first, Jesus is promised. He fulfills the promise to Abraham. Second, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. This is why Matthew takes such great lengths to put David up in front in the Cliff Notes version. But also, listen to how he refers to David down in verse 6. Jesse, the father of David, the king. David, the king. There's nobody in this genealogy that gets a descriptor besides Jesus, who is the Christ. So why David, the king? Why is it so important for Matthew to tell his primarily Jewish audience that this guy who they know is the most famous king in their history was a king? Be like somebody coming up to us and saying, and Barack Obama, the president. It's like, oh, that one. Got it. I mean, this is clear. Everybody knows who David is. Why is he being called the king? Because Jesus fulfills not only the promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, but he fulfills another promise, another kingly promise. And this one we can find in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen as I read this to you. This is God speaking to David, the king. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, of course, Solomon is the first fulfillment of this promise. He does build God a house. He builds the original temple. But Solomon dies. He's not currently reigning on the throne of David. And not only that, but remember that for 600 years, this throne of David that God promises to establish forever is vacant? Enter Jesus. Jesus, the one who will sit on this throne forever. Jesus, the one who will also build for God a house, his church. Matthew needs us to know that unlike Herod, who's sitting on the throne at this time, Jesus has a rightful, familial claim to the throne of David that sits vacant awaiting his birth. Matthew needs us to know this. Jesus is the promised king. But when we put these two things together, that he comes both from David and from Abraham, we see that his kingship is not just about ruling Israel because God promised to Abraham that his offspring would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jesus' kingship is for all people. And that is the last statement to look at. Jesus' kingship, Jesus is the promised king for all people. And if you need any further proof, just look at his genealogy. They're all there. Men, women, kings, refugees, sinners, saints, and a whole lot of just regular people are explicitly mentioned in this list who is Jesus' family chosen by Matthew. They're all there. When we look forward last week to Revelation chapter 7 and we saw that Jesus is worshipped in his throne room by, a, by people from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and tongues, we saw this, a king who rules over all people. This is who Jesus is. And before he's even born, Matthew needs us to understand this about him. I can't overstate this. If we are going to understand in this long journey through Matthew anything, we have got to know that Jesus is the promised king for all people. Jesus is the promised king for all people, which means every time we see Jesus 
do a miracle. We see an example of what his kingly power is. And we have identified for us who his enemies are. Every time Jesus preaches a sermon or tells a parable, he describes to us the character of the citizens who make up his kingdom. It guides us in every part of our reading of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the promised king for all people. And even as such, the closet of his family is full of skeletons. Look, I don't know who it is in your family that maybe you're not super pumped about seeing this holiday season or what the past memory or pain is that you don't want to relive. Jesus' family is worse. And here's, what I, here's why I think that is the best news we could hear this morning. If any of these people can be chosen and published as explicitly part of Jesus' family, then so can you. There is nothing you have ever done or could ever do that would make you a less likely candidate than the people we just talked about. And yet here they are for the whole world to see, written in a book as members of Jesus' family. Look, Jesus, he didn't come to find a bunch of criminals to let off of their charges. He came to take a group of rebels and restore them to full citizenship in his kingdom forever. He came to find a bunch of wayward and fatherless children to adopt. And he knew the cost of that. It cost him his blood and his life. He died for all those who would be citizens of his kingdom. And then he came alive again for them. So let me ask you this question. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Often his kingship is something that we miss in our culture, in our time. Is he your king? And think about everything he offers to you. And ask yourself the question, what other king could do this? What other king could save you and me from our past, from our sins, from all the skeletons in our closet? Can King Career do it? Can King Wall Street or Madison Avenue do it? Can King Family do it? Can King Bank Account do it? Nobody but Jesus can do what Jesus has done for you. So let him be your king. Don't trust all the things of this world that can never do anything close to what he's done for you. Jesus is the king, the promised king for all people. And next week, next week we get to meet him. But before then, let's pray. Father, uh, as odd as it sounds to say, we thank you for preserving this genealogy for us. We thank you that you have given us your word which introduces us to our Savior and our King and that we can learn, Father, even from the skeletons in the closet of his family. Father, I pray that among our hearts you would find those who long to be your citizens who understand that we are rebels to your cause, but that payment has been made. And Lord, as we go forth from here this week and into this Christmas season, may we rejoice in the promised king who has come for us. 
to reclaim us from our sin and our brokenness, to make us full members of his kingdom, of his family, so that on the last day we could stand in his presence and worship him forever. It's in his name that we pray these things to you. Amen.